American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. So uh, this morning I'm going to talk about the Sand Creek Massacre. I'm going to talk about the Civil War uh, as an Indian war, and I'm going to try and talk about the collision of print uh, visual culture and uh, and collective memory. Um, I, I don't know how much all of you or any of you know about the Sand Creek Massacre or about uh, the Civil War in the American West, and, and so I'm going to proceed uh, with an assumption of, of relatively little knowledge, um, but you should also just feel free to interrupt me at any point while I'm talking. If you need anything clarified, I don't, I don't have such a uh, well-regimented train of thought that you're going to derail it. Um, and, and I should, up front, because this is a seminar on, on visual culture, I, I have to, to pre-caveat what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm using a lot of images today, uh, mostly so you don't get bored. Um, I'm, I'm not using these images particularly critically. Uh, and so we can talk about that decision if you want to. You can excoriate me uh, when we get to the Q and A. Um, but I've, I've tried. What I've tried to do is it, it's sort of a uh, it, it's 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 image extensive rather than image intensive. So we'll see what you think about that decision. Um, I'm already regretting it, as you can tell. Uh, and then before going on, I should just say thanks uh, to the organizers of the seminar. I did one of these. I did an NEH. Is this? I don't know whether this is a seminar or I, they're, they're institute. institute. Okay. There, there's so many different designations. Uh, I did one of these. Um, boy, it was like 15 years ago or something like that. Now, uh, when I was working on my first book, when I had absolutely no idea. I, I had. I'd already written the book. I had a full draft of it, and I had no idea what it was about. Um, no, I'm, it's not a joke. I mean, I really, the book was done, and I, I literally had no clue what the argument was. And then I did one of these, and I spent a summer in Chicago, and it was 175 degrees every day, uh, and the speakers went on and on and on and on, and it was awful. Um, but then at the end of it, magically, I knew what my book was about. So I, I, I wish that kind of a transformative experience for all of you. Um, I, I'm going to contribute by going on and on and on and on and on. Um, so on November 29th, 1864, uh, something like 700 soldiers from the 1st and 3rd Colorado regiments, uh, these were soldiers that were led by a colonel named John Shivington, who I'll talk about quite a bit. Uh, these soldiers attacked an Arapaho and Cheyenne encampment, uh, an encampment that was nestled in a bend of a, of a stream called Sand Creek. That stream was uh, in, is still in uh, what it then was uh, called Colorado Territory, and you can see the, the massacre site there close to the Kansas border. Um, they attacked something like 900, perhaps as many as 1,200 uh, Native American people, uh, Native peoples who believed that they'd recently made peace with white authorities in Colorado. Uh, those Arapahos and Cheyennes fled up what at that time of year was a dry stream bed. Uh, the onslaught continued for about eight and a half, maybe nine hours. Um, and by the end of the day, something like 175 
All of these numbers are disputed. That's why I'm hedging each time I say a number. But, but somewhere between 160 and 250 uh, Native people were dead, the overwhelming majority of whom were women, children, uh, or the very elderly. John Shivington's troops then disgraced themselves by taking from this field what one of them described as, quote, trophies, end quote. These were the scalps and the fingers and, and the genitalia of their victims. The soldiers then burned what remained of this village uh, before riding back to Denver, Colorado, where they were greeted as heroes. And in, and in the weeks after Sand Creek, they displayed these, again, trophies, using their words, at a downtown theater. They made a kind of a, a pageant or a spectacle uh, of what had happened at Sand Creek. Um, and, and by several accounts, thousands of people came through that exhibit over the course of uh, about three or four weeks. Okay, so now, and, and I, I should probably stop and warn you, I'm, I'm going to be jumping around in temporally the, the, with time in this talk. I'll try and signpost carefully each time I, I shift uh, the time scale. But again, if at any point you find yourself confused, you're in good company. No, um, just, just let me know. So now I'm, I'm moving forward about a century and a half to April 28, 2007, uh, when the National Park Service opened uh, its 391st unit, which you can see here was called the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. Uh, there was a ceremony that day to mark this opening. It was equal parts uh, memorial service and celebration. Uh, first, drum groups played. Then there was an invocation from a Southern Cheyenne chief. Uh, governors from Plains states spoke. That's governor of Colorado at the time. Uh, a number of spiritual leaders from the tribe spoke. The head of the National Park Service, and on and on and on. These these uh, uh, speeches lasted about three and a half hours. Uh, I'm going to go on just a little less than that. Uh, about three hours and twenty minutes. That's what we agreed on, right, Josh? Um, and uh, everyone in the audience by about hour two, totally miserable except me. Um, I was the only person there with my laptop furiously taking notes. Everyone around me, they were like desiccating, right? It was very, very hot and dry that day on the plains, and everyone was miserable. Uh, and it was, it was a, but it was really kind of an extraordinary event for a variety of different reasons. Uh, initially at this event, the speakers all were quite optimistic about what this site might mean. Um, they suggested that this Sand Creek site would offer healing. That was, that was the word that they used over and over again. Uh, that it would offer healing to the affected tribes and also that it provided a kind of a blueprint for future cooperation between tribal peoples and federal authorities. Um, now I'm going to again take a step back and suggest, as most of you probably know, that memorials are always shaped by politics, um, which is just to say that contemporary concerns uh, inflect how the past gets presented at these sorts of markers, because memorial designers are, are looking at the present and also at the future when they do their work. And this is probably especially true of national historic sites because federal authorities for a very long time have viewed collective remembrance 
as a kind of a patriotic alchemy, as a way of, of conjuring unity from divisiveness uh, by appealing to what they hope will be shared perceptions of the past. And so these kinds of monuments are supposed to serve national interests by linking together uh, the, the people who live in the United States out of common memories, the, the theory goes, uh, Americans forge a common or a collective identity. Now, people at this site, at the Sand Creek site, uh, suggested that, that this place was going to be perhaps uniquely uh, useful in this regard. They believed this for a variety of different reasons, but in part they believed it because uh, in recent years the, the justification or the rationale for collective remembrance has often rested on this idea that, that there can be a kind of healing drawn from remembering. So you can think about the, the Murrah building uh, in Oklahoma City or here uh, in New York, the 9-11 memorial. Again, the notion is that by memorializing these sorts of tragedies, this is a way of, of, of dealing with collective trauma. The Sand Creek site, speakers at the opening ceremony said, uh, was going again to be, if not uniquely, it would be unusually effective in this regard because it would be a site where people would remember the nation's history of racial violence. Uh, by remembering John Shivington's victims, by remembering American soldiers as perpetrators, visitors would supposedly be able to transcend their prejudices. Uh, but, and, and you may already have picked up on this, Sand Creek is, uh, in my view at least, an, a, an unlikely source for, for this sort of utopian sentiment. Um, and so, again, in my view, not surprisingly, as this event wore on into our, it was, it was around the two and a half hour mark, uh, a number of dissenting voices began speaking up, especially voices belonging to the native people who were involved in the memorialization process. Uh, a few of them, this is the, at the time, the Northern Cheyenne Tribal Chairman, Eugene Little Coyote, uh, these people rejected what they saw as, as a kind of a hollow offer of, of painless reconciliation that they thought the federal government was trying to purchase on the cheap, right? They, they saw this as, as, uh, as something that was too simple in some ways. Um, a number of them feared that this site might actually uh, be a stalking horse, a kind of a stalking horse for an older assimilationist project for the federal government's longstanding effort to strip tribal peoples of their distinctive identities. Uh, and, and so rather than accepting this site as a symbol of federal power, a number of them portrayed it as a memorial or as an emblem of tribal persistence and self-determination. And then there were other participants at the opening ceremony who expressed their own suspicions about this memorial for their own reasons. First of all, because the federal government was and remains very unpopular on Colorado's eastern plains. Uh, then uh, there were those people, this is Marilyn Musgrave, who at the time was uh, Eastern Colorado's congressional, congressional representative. Um, Marilyn Musgrave said that this site smacked of, quote, political correctness, end quote, 
uh, that it was an example of what she described as, quote, gratuitous revisionism, end quote. She said that during the ceremony? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's like... Uh, in front of all these people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you can see... So these are all tribal elders along here. Uh, on this side, what you can't see are all of the all of the federal and state dignitaries, including Mary Bomar, who was the head of the NPS, and the governor of Colorado at the time, Bill Ritter, uh, um, Sam Brownback, who at that time was sitting in the Senate. He wasn't the governor of Kansas; he was a United States senator. All of them were sitting there, and they were just looking stricken. Uh, Brownback, uh, who who is has has equally uh, uh, sort of unalloyed conservative credentials to match Marilyn Musgraves, um, had actually given a really extraordinary uh, 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 series of remarks about 15 minutes earlier, in which he'd issued an apology. He he'd said that he couldn't apologize on the part of the federal government, but he was apologizing on behalf of the people of the plains. Uh, his father is a was I believe was yeah was a fire and brimstone uh, preacher, and Brownback was a kind of a Jeremiah. It was a really amazing moment, and and he looked sick while while uh, Musgrave was talking. But you know that's that's what happens at these kinds of events. You give people a microphone, they're going to talk. Um, at any rate, Musgrave went on and on and on, and, and, and what she did is she talked a lot about the 9-11 attacks, and she suggested that, that any site that in any way indicted even uh, uh, the, the army of the 19th century somehow flirted with anti-Americanism. That was, that was her point, that it was, that it was inappropriate uh, in any way to suggest that American soldiers could be guilty of, of what amounted to war crimes. So what I'm going to do over the next half hour or so is suggest that this opening ceremony, this controversy in 2007, echoed about a century and a half's uh, wrangling over how best to remember Sand Creek, um, and that this ceremony and those struggles over, again, a century and a half, uh, pivoted on a series of very, very complicated questions, particularly about the relationship between politics and violence on the American borderlands, <laughs> Uh, and also on the relationship between the process of continental expansion and, and several wars, the United States Civil War and the so-called Plains Indian Wars that emerged out of that process of expansion, that emerged out of American imperialism in the 19th century. And what I'll suggest is what, that when the site sponsors, when the Sand Creek site sponsors tried to deal with these questions, they learned that this event, the Sand Creek Massacre, remained, and I'm borrowing this phrase from Ed Linenthal, it remained a, a, a kind of a, a history front in an ongoing culture war. Um, and that the, these sorts of efforts to memorialize the past uh, are, are just as likely to uh, peel old scabs as they are to help people heal. And, and then I'm going to conclude, by the way, by suggesting that that may not be a bad thing that experiencing this kind of collective trauma through memorialization may, may not be a problem. The last thing that I'm going to suggest is that uh, memorialization is always a fraught process um, because it's inherently political, because uh, it, it, um, it's so complicated. Um, and what I'm going to suggest is that Sand Creek and the Civil War and more broadly uh, and I'm going to, to make the argument, as you'll see throughout everything that I say, that Sand Creek was an important part of the Civil War, even though we don't typically think of it in that way, 
that Sand Creek was, was an unusually complicated event to remember because there were a variety of different stories that, that didn't just conflict, but they were incommensurable. Uh, it wasn't possible to hear the various stories of Sand Creek that had been preserved over about a century and a half and understand how they could possibly coexist. And, and what the designers of this memorial had to do is try and reconcile these stories. And, and in the end, again, what I'll suggest is that they gave up. Uh, they gave up that effort, which was a very, very shrewd decision on their part. The first of those stories uh, belonged um, to a uh, Methodist minister uh, who also, it's important to remember or understand, was a staunch abolitionist. This is John Shivington, the colonel who was in charge of the 3rd Colorado Regiment. John Shivington understood the violence at Sand Creek uh, both as a noble part of civilizing, that was his language and the language that was used very commonly in that moment, civilizing the American West and also preserving the Union. In fact, he saw those two processes, the civilization of the West and the preservation of the Union as inextricably intertwined. He didn't believe that it was possible to separate them. And so he used the gallons of blood that, that his troops spilled along the banks of Sand Creek to depict a kind of a masterpiece. On the afternoon of November 29, 1864, he wrote a series of dispatches about what had happened there. He bragged that his soldiers had killed more than 1,000 people. This was, was uh, unequivocally not true. He claimed, though, that they'd killed more than 1,000 people, including a number of chiefs, he said. He suggested that his soldiers had destroyed this village in its entirety, uh, that his men had, quote, whipped savages, end quote, who he suggested were responsible for a series of depredations that had been committed against white settlers living in Colorado Territory in the spring and summer of 1864. And then for the rest of his life, John Shivington repeated and embellished those stories. Uh, he talked about how Sand Creek was part of the Civil War. This was a crucial part of the story that he told and also how his men had killed Native Americans who he said had stood in the way again of this process of settling the West and also how those Native people had been a threat to the Union, uh, both because they were standing in the way of the civilization of this region, but also because he suggested they were in cahoots with the Confederacy that they had forged an alliance with Confederate intriguers in the West, he claimed, uh, and so they were a danger, a kind of an existential threat to the Union. Shivington made this claim by pointing back to the Dakota War in Minnesota in 1862 and 1863, also by pointing back to the Cherokee's decision to fight with the Confederacy, uh, he suggested that while federal troops were busy elsewhere, fighting uh, rebels, particularly uh, in the South, that Native Americans in Colorado Territory had banded together. They formed a massive confederation, and they were going to push white settlers out of the region. He pointed especially to one man, a man named George Bent, about whom I'll talk more in a moment or two, and suggested that George Bent was the leader of this confederacy, a confederacy, he said, he said that was made up 
of Arapahoes, Cheyennes, Comanches, uh, and various Sioux tribes that had come down uh, from the Great Lakes region to join in what he and the governor of Colorado Territory, John Evans, suggested was going to be a wholesale slaughter of white settlers. Um, in this way, John Shivington made his victims at Sand Creek enemies, uh, not just of Western settlers, but of the Union, and Sand Creek then became a triumph not just in what people were already calling the Indian Wars, but also in the Civil War. And as I said, Shivington spoke about this event for the remainder of his life for another 20 years or so. Uh, finally, in 1883, uh, the last time that I've ever been able to figure out he talked about Sand Creek was at a, a, an annual gathering of a uh, heritage uh, organization in Colorado, the Colorado Pioneers Society, I think it was called. He, Shivington, spoke at their annual uh, gala, at, at their banquet, uh, and he gave a, a, an impassioned defense of Sand Creek, uh, concluding by saying, I stand by Sand Creek the last words, again, that I think he said about this in public. There were other people, though, who didn't stand by Sand Creek, uh, including this man, Silas Sewell. You can see down here, Captain S.S. Uh, Sewell, Silas Sewell. Uh, before coming to Colorado Territory four years before Sand Creek, Sewell had lived in Kansas, uh, bleeding Kansas, as it was known at the time. He'd allied himself with John Brown. He was an abolitionist and a Jayhawker. Um, at Sand Creek, Sewell refused to commit the troops under him to the fight. Uh, he kept the soldiers under him. He was a company commander. He had about 100 soldiers under him. And he refused to commit the soldiers that he commanded to this slaughter. He kept them on the sidelines. And then in the aftermath of Sand Creek, he wrote a letter to a friend of his, one of his former commanding officers, Ned Winecoop, uh, who here is wearing a lovely cape, um, Sewell wrote to Winecoop and insisted that what had happened at Sand Creek had been a slaughter that in some ways had sullied the interwoven, again, interwoven for Sewell, fights for the Union and for the West. He cataloged the terrible cruelties that had been visited upon the Arapahoes and, Sand, and, and Cheyennes at Sand Creek. He talked about the bodies of women, children, uh, and men that had been hacked apart. Um, and suggested to Winecoop that this had been a massacre and that John Shivington and a number of soldiers there were guilty of what today, again, we would describe as war crimes. Sewell wrote to Winecoop because he knew that Winecoop was politically connected. He hoped that Winecoop was going to reach out to people in the War Department. Winecoop did exactly that. And the result was that there were three federal investigations into what happened at Sand Creek. This was extraordinarily unusual for violence on the borderlands. This is one of a very few moments in which the federal government looked deeply into what happened to Native peoples at a number of episodes of violence that took place between, let's say, 1849 uh, and 1890 or so. And as a result of that, we have a lot of source material about what took place at Sand Creek. Sewell himself testified before one of those investigations in the spring of 1865. He recounted how the previous summer, the summer of 1864, 
a group of peace chiefs shown here, had come to Denver to meet with the territorial governor. At that meeting, John Evans, the governor, and John Shivington had explained to them that they, that these peace chiefs, including Black Kettle, shown here, that they should bring their followers to the banks of Sand Creek, where if they waited there, they would be protected, or at least that's how these peace chiefs understood this meeting. Um, and as a result of that, they had gone to the banks of Sand Creek, Shivington had known that that's where they were waiting, and he had brought his men there on November 29th. Um, about a week after he testified, Silas Sewell's story of Sand Creek took on added resonance. Uh, on April 23rd, 1865, Silas Sewell was murdered in the streets of Denver. He was killed by a soldier in the second Colorado Cavalry, not the third. Uh, this was a soldier who had served with John Shivington in the past. And as a result of that, and also as a result of the fact that Abraham Lincoln had been killed just a week or less than a week earlier, uh, there were a number of conspiracy theories that began circulating in Denver, including the story that John Shivington had paid this soldier to kill Silas Sewell, to silence him, so that he wouldn't continue to repeat these sorts of stories. And as a result of that, Sewell's recollections of Sand Creek became for some observers, unimpeachable. These were the memories of a man who'd been martyred, who'd spoken truth to power, and on and on and on. One of the federal officials looking into Sand Creek wrote, quote, the barbarism of slavery has culminated in the assassination of Mr. Lincoln. The barbarism of Sand Creek has culminated in the assassination of Captain Sewell, end quote. Um, as I said, there were three federal investigations into what happened at Sand Creek. All three determined that this event was a bad act. One went so far as to describe it as a massacre. But John Shivington and many other Westerners, particularly in Colorado, didn't accept these findings, which they viewed as trumped up. Oh, that's a really terrible uh, <laughs> verb to use right now. Um, which they viewed as highly politicized. Uh, and inflammatory, and so the fight over how to remember Sand Creek was just getting started, and it would continue for years to come. For example, in 1879, an author named Helen Hunt Jackson, who was an advocate of what at the time was being called Indian reform, began writing letters to newspapers around the United States. She drew on Silas Sewell's stories of Sand Creek to suggest that the Native Americans uh, at this episode of violence, that they'd been peaceful, that they'd been attacked uh, and, uh, by Shivington's men um, in what amounted uh, to an unfair act, and that Shivington's men had then desecrated the dead. Um, these charges scandalized a number of people in Colorado, including this man, William Byers, um, who in 1864, and again, let me just clarify the timeline here, Jackson's writing in 1879, so I'm now flashing back just for a moment to 1864, William Byers was the editor of the Denver Rocky Mountain News, which was the largest newspaper in Colorado Territory, and he had in 1864 defended John Shivington and his men at Sand Creek. And so in 1879, 
Byers began a kind of a print war with Jackson, publishing his own letters suggesting that Jackson, who was originally from back east, from Massachusetts, couldn't possibly understand the necessity of violence in the West, also that she was a woman, and therefore she possessed effete sensibilities, feminine sensibilities, that were out of place in this kind of a rough-and-tumble context. Helen Hunt Jackson, though, was really no shrinking violet at all, and so she fired back at Jacks, uh, excuse me, at Byers over and over again. This went on for months. Meanwhile, while Jackson and Byers uh, were, were having this kind of fight in print, Jackson was working on a book, a book that she published in 1881. That book was called Century of Dishonor. Um, it's a, a, a kind of a, a catalog of the way in which federal authorities broke promises to Native Americans, broke treaty promises uh, over the course of United States history. Helen Hunt Jackson suggested in Century of Dishonor that the United States, despite having abolished slavery uh, a bit more than 15, no, around 15 years earlier, uh, that, that despite having abolished slavery, still uh, had one of its two original sins to contend with. And that the only way that this nation could get right with God was by dealing with its mistreatment of its indigenous peoples. Um, now, at the time, there were a number of people who were quite sympathetic to this position, uh, not necessarily because of the moral argument that Jackson was making, but because of more pragmatic concerns. In 1881, the Modoc War, the Red River War, and the Great Sioux War, including what at the time was called the Custer Massacre at the Little Bighorn, all of these events had recently taken place. All of them appeared to most observers to be extraordinary and surprising failures of federal troops. Uh, and so there were a number of people in the Interior Department who were eager to embrace uh, calls for reform. But even as the climate surrounding federal tribal relations was starting to shift, there were still a number of people uh, who adhered to John Shivington's story of what had happened at Sand Creek, uh, including editors at the Gunnison Democrat, a newspaper on the western slope of Colorado, who, in the immediate aftermath of the publication of Century of Dishonor, called for, quote, another Sand Creek, end quote. They wanted another Sand Creek, uh, in this case to wipe out the Utes in the aftermath of what was described in Colorado as the Meeker Massacre. Um, now, I mentioned George Bent earlier. Now I'm going to talk about him in a little more depth. Uh, George Bent was the son of a borderlands trade tycoon named William Bent, an owl woman, uh, William Bent's wife, who was uh, Cheyenne. Um, George Bent was a, a, an avid reader of newspapers and also Western histories. Um, around this time, in the mid-1880s, uh, Bent, who, let's see here, I do have a picture of, good, he's shown here with his wife, Magpie. Uh, Bent decided in the mid-1880s that he wanted to weigh in on what had happened at Sand Creek. Uh, he had been wounded at Sand Creek but survived, um, and, and he had collected stories for, from tribal elders in the aftermath of the massacre. Now, the, the context here matters a great deal. Around this time, Frederick Jackson Turner, of course, was speaking at the Chicago World's Fair, 
talking about how the frontier was closing. Conservationists were warning about the impending extinction of the bison and also the tribes that depended on those animals for their survival. And Americans were consuming piles and piles of dime novels. I should tell you, I'm just going to cop to this right now, I'm a terrible historian. This is not a dime novel. This is a nickel novel. But nevertheless, you get the point. Uh, all of which is to say um, that the West, in both popular culture and public policy, stood at the center of debates about the future of the United States. And George Bent was concerned that Native people had no voice in those discussions. Now, he understand, un understood excuse me, that as a Native American, he was unlikely to be taken seriously. And so he made a decision that he would work with white scholars who he hoped would carry his message, his story of Sand Creek to a broader audience. He first began working with George Bird Grinnell, one of the founders of the field of professional anthropology. Grinnell borrowed hundreds of stories from Bent and other native peoples uh, and, never, uh, and never credited them. And that infuriated Bent, and so he moved on. He began working with James Mooney, one of the most famous uh, ethnographers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, a, 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 an employee of the Smithsonian. Um, but very, very quickly, Bent decided that Mooney was a little bit off. Um, he described him in one letter as, quote, crazy, uh, end quote. That's not diagnostic necessarily, but Mooney was, in fact, a really weird dude. Um, so Bent had a pretty uh, uh, clear sense of this. And so finally, he began working with a historian. Historians are always the hero of these stories. Um, with a historian named George Hyde. Um, I don't have a picture of Hyde because he's uh, relatively obscure. Or maybe he was just shy. I don't know. Um, in 1906, Bent and Hyde together published a series of six articles um, in a magazine that was uh, uh, called The Frontier. Um, in those articles, George Bent first acknowledged that he had fought with the Confederacy, as John Shivington had always claimed. But he went on to say that it was nonsense that the Arapahoes and Cheyennes had in any way allied themselves with the Confederate rebellion. He said that that was nonsense because the Arapahoes and Cheyennes didn't much like each other. Mm -hmm. And he went on to say they especially didn't like the Comanches or the Apaches or the Lakotas or Dakotas, who bent, excuse me, who Shivington also claimed had been part of this grand conspiracy. Uh, bent then talked about the massacre itself, talked about the way in which Shivington had betrayed peace chiefs. He talked about the fact that Black Kettle had flown a white flag over his lodge signaling to federal soldiers that this was a peace camp and that flying below that white flag was an American flag, that Black Kettle had flown both of these standards as a way of suggesting that this uh, encampment was under the protection of federal soldiers. Bent's essays infuriated a number of people, including some of Shivington's surviving soldiers. This is Jacob Downing. Uh, who resented the claim that he and his comrades had somehow dishonored themselves at Sand Creek. Downing wrote in the Denver Times that Bent was, quote, a cutthroat and a thief, a liar and a scoundrel, but worst of all, a half-breed, end quote. In other words, suggesting that his heritage made him an unreliable narrator. 
Uh, Downing then spent the rest of his life trying to embed John Shivington's stories of Sand Creek in a Civil War narrative that heritage groups were producing around the United States at the time. Work that culminated in Colorado with the construction, the unveiling of a memorial on the state capitol steps in Denver. Uh, this monument featured a plaque on its base cataloging the battles and engagements, so-called, in which Coloradans had fought. I'm not sure if you can make it out. It's a little bit grainy here. But Sand Creek was among them. Um, at, the, oh, at the ceremony uh, marking the dedication of this statue, organizers stitched together national unity and regional pride that kind of seamlessly integrated visions of empire and liberty. Uh, a man named uh, Irving Hale, a general in the Spanish-American War who later helped to found the veterans of foreign wars, spoke. He celebrated the Civil War, quote, for making freedom universal for all Americans, end quote, obviously ignoring the impact of the Civil War on Native Americans. In effect, what the, uh, the memorial sponsors tried to do and perhaps succeeded in doing at least for a time was smoothing away the massacre's rough edges and casting John Shivington's story in bronze. Now again, I'm going to flash forward now to 1950, when Coloradans began working against a very different political backdrop, and they started to segregate stories of Sand Creek from those of the Civil War and associate the bloodshed exclusively with the process of westward expansion. August 6, 1950, saw the state unveil two historic markers, the first was a marble slab. It sat on this rise, which for the remainder of my talk, I'm going to refer to as the Monument Overlook. And I've got about 10 minutes to go or so, so I'm, I'm getting near the end here. Um, that marble slab echoed John Shivington. Uh, this is on the day of the dedication. It later filled, they filled it in. Um, it said, as you can see here, Sand Creek Battleground. Now, having said that, there was a second marker also unveiled that day. This was an obelisk, uh, and it's sponsored by the State Historical Society, and it included a much more mixed or equivocal message. It read, quote, Sand Creek Battle or Massacre, end quote. Uh, it went on to describe what had happened at Sand Creek, this bloodletting as, quote, a regrettable tragedy of the conquest of the West. Now, again, this was, as I said, an equivocal interpretation born of the need to placate historical society donors and also the people of Kiowa County who didn't like being told they had a massacre site in their backyard. They weren't interested in having Sand Creek relabeled a massacre, at least not unequivocally. Uh, Colorado's chief historian at the time, a man named Leroy Hafen, oversaw these dedication ceremonies. Uh, he said of Sand Creek, quote, some have called it a battle while others have labeled it a massacre, end quote. Hafen decided that he, decided that he was going to duck that fight entirely. He called Sand Creek, quote, a tragic engagement, an inevitable outgrowth of contact between the incompatible cultures of red and white men, end quote. In this way, he did a couple of things. First of all, he elided responsibility for what had happened at Sand Creek. After all, it was inevitable. Uh, and then he divorced it from its Civil War context. This made sense in 1950 during the Cold War. 
Federal authorities were then drumming up support for internationalism by encouraging Americans to recall the Civil War as an emblem of the United States' commitment to freedom. Sand Creek, which obviously was bathed in an increasingly ambiguous light in these years, battle or massacre, didn't fit with this vision of the Civil War as an unalloyed good war. Now again, flashing forward to the 1960s now, more changes in the United States' cultural and political climate seeded the ground for yet another reappraisal of Sand Creek. Late in the decade, a group of tribal activists formed an organization called AIM, the American Indian Movement. A year later, 1969, some of that organization's members helped to take over Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay, signaling the arrival of what people now describe as red power on the national stage. Now, coincidentally, a week before the beginning of the Alcatraz occupation, an investigative reporter at the time, a very young man named Seymour Hirsch, broke the story of atrocities committed by United States soldiers in the Vietnamese hamlet of My Lai. Here, of course, is an iconic image. And so in 1970, when a man named D. Brown wrote a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, the modern civil rights movement was maintaining a steady focus on issues of racial inequality. Many Americans were part of what uh, was being called the New Age. They were fascinated by traditional indigenous cultures. And a number of people living in this country had once again confronted the capacity of United States soldiers uh, to slaughter innocent civilians. And so Dee Brown's book, again, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, found an audience eager to learn more about the events described within it. For most of his life, Dee Brown worked at the University of Illinois Library. I'm going to get a picture of you in this pose someday, <laughs> Greg, with your hands steepled, contemplating the past. Uh, um, at night, after he worked on the library, he wrote books, um, more than 20 books, which makes my hands shake, uh, including Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Um, I'll tell you, professional historians hated Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee when it came out. They reviewed it uh, brutally, saying that Dee Brown had made errors of fact, that he tortured his evidence in a number of ways, that he was far too credulous about accepting uh, uh, evidence that was produced by Native Americans, and on and on and on. Um, the popular press, though, loved the book. Uh, the New York Times called it impossible to read and impossible to put down. In the years since it was published, uh, it sold more than 5 million copies, um, even better than After Mathematics, uh, at least so far. Um, <laughs> And so uh, it's been wildly successful. One of the chapters of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee focuses on Sand Creek. Dee Brown uses an, uh, an, a narrative arc, an interpretive frame, borrowed from Helen Hunt Jackson, from George Bent, from Silas Sewell. He describes the way in which Native Americans uh, uh, were butchered at Sand Creek. He describes it as a betrayal and as a massacre. Um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee has been enormously influential, uh, both for popular audience and despite the fact that historians at the time were very skeptical about the book, for scholars as well. Um, So-called New Western historians especially uh, have been influenced by this book. One of them, a man named Paul Hutton, has said, we all went to bed thinking one way about the Indian Wars and Indians, and we woke up the next morning after that book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, after that book was published, and we never thought the same way again, end quote. 
The impact of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee could still be felt in 1998 when Congress passed the initial legislation authorizing the creation of the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. Sorry, this is White Antelope uh, on the left, um, one of the people that Dee Brown wrote about. Uh, but even then, even in 1998, even after nearly a century and a half of, of struggling over how to remember this event, the National Park Service discovered that, that a number of questions surrounding the massacre had yet to be answered. Again, questions about the relationship between politics and violence, about the relationship between this event and the Civil War. But then a new question, a very surprising question that no one anticipated, caught the Park Service off guard. And that was the question of where had Sand Creek taken place? It turned out that before Sand Creek could be memorialized, it first had to be found. And so the Park Service launched uh, about an 18-month search for Sand Creek, a search that became incredibly contentious because of epistemological or methodological disagreements over how to interpret the historical record. Native American descendants of Sand Creek's victims typically based their understanding of this episode's history and geography on traditional tribal methods, oral histories, uh, and, and especially on stories and maps produced by George Bent around the turn of the 20th century. And I'll show you a number of the other, uh, a number of other Bent, of the Bent maps in a moment. For decades, uh, the Sand Creek descendants, as they described themselves, had used this map and others as kind of a guide. They'd made pilgrimages to a spot near the monument overlook that I showed you a few moments ago, where they performed rituals and venerated the memories of their ancestors. The Park Service, by contrast, tried to solve the mystery of this killing field's location by looking at other materials, written records, especially records produced by the troops who'd fought at Sand Creek, and then by consulting a very different map, a map penned by a soldier named Samuel Bonsall, who visited the site years after the massacre with William Tecumseh Sherman, then in charge of the United States military's forces in the West. Not sure if you can make this out, but it says Shivington's Massacre right here. This is Bent's map. Using this map, the Park Service believed that it pinpointed not only the location of the Sand Creek Massacre, but the exact site of Black Kettle's village, located less than a mile upstream from the monument overlook. The Park Service then sent archaeologists into the field. Uh, they discovered a huge band, a kind of a plume of artifacts near this site, which seemed to confirm the Park Service's hypothesis. Very quickly, I'll orient you. This is that marker, the Sand Creek Battleground marker. So this is the monument overlook right here. This bend in the creek, the Sand Creek descendants identified as the location that George Bent mapped. And here, upstream from that, you can see that large concentration of artifacts that these archaeologists unearthed. Uh, the descendants were uh, infuriated. They were infuriated because the Park Service was relying on sources produced by Sand Creek's perpetrators rather than its victims. They pointed back to George Bent's maps, uh, insisting that Bent, who was, of course, again, a Cheyenne survivor of this ordeal, had very clearly placed Black Kettle's camp in a crook of Sand Creek. They then produced their own map, which competed 
with the Park Service's map. They included Black Kettles Village. You can see their map here. Black Kettles Village right in the bend of that creek. They placed it precisely where they said George Bent had uh, put it about uh, a century earlier. Meanwhile, the Park Service had its own map. The Park Service was, for a variety of different reasons, caught off guard by this dispute and eventually arrived at a kind of a compromise, a national historic site with boundaries expansive enough to encompass a number of different interpretations. It was big enough to fit all the stories of what had happened at Sand Creek. Then, after a number of additional twists and turns, the Park Service was finally ready to open uh, this National Historic Site, all of which leads back to April 28, 2007. Um, now, I'm going to conclude by suggesting to you that this question of what to call Sand Creek, a battle or a massacre, seems now to have been answered unequivocally. But the interpretation of Sand Creek remains an unresolved or an open question. I say this because we are now uh, in the shadow of the sesquicentennial celebration of the United States Civil War. And the Park Service at this site, unlike any other Civil War site, is asking uh, visitors to think about the Civil War not as uh, a good war, to think about the Civil War as uh, a war not one marked by uh, stories uh, in which President Lincoln died so that the United States might be reborn, these kind of resurrection stories that fit neatly with Christian narratives of catharsis through suffering. Uh, these sorts of stories are, are, are very familiar to most of us. In this way, collective memory has transfigured the Civil War's history of violence into one of virtue, uh, its tragedies into triumphs. Um, but Sand Creek, again, depicted as a massacre, bucks the redemptive currents that run through most national historic sites. Uh, this site indicts characters usually cast as heroes in the American imagination, citizen soldiers, overland pioneers, officials in the Lincoln administration. This reflects a much darker vision of the Civil War's causes and its consequences. Expansion into the American West touched off a war that helped to destroy slavery, but also other wars with Native American peoples, wars that left behind no simple lessons for federal commemorators who may be intent on bending public memory to nationalist ends. Um, in the end, this story of memorializing Sand Creek suggests that history and memory are both malleable, but not necessarily biddable. Uh, that the people of the United States are so various that they, that we, shouldn't be expected to share a single tale of a common past. Sometimes our stories are going to complement one another, sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll clash. Depending on who tells it, the story of Sand Creek can suggest that the Civil War midwifed, in Abraham Lincoln's words, a new birth of freedom, but also that it delivered the Indian Wars, that it was the moment uh, that it was, excuse me, a moment of national redemption for some people, uh, but of dispossession and subjugation for others. That the Civil War was then both a war of liberation, but also of empire. Um, the Park Service and the National, uh, excuse me, the Park Service and tribal descendants uh, have 
that, and I don't think ever are going to concur on every element of Sand Creek's interpretation, but they have perhaps improbably agreed that this historic site should challenge visitors to grapple with competing narratives of United States history, to struggle with how the American past is shot through with painful, even bloody ironies. Um, and as a result, what I've suggested in this book that I wrote a few years ago is that the Sand Creek Massacre may no longer be misplaced, at least in the landscape of American memory. And I will leave it there. Or features that they have at the site, and sure. how those have been received by the descendants. Um, the site is incredibly lightly interpreted. Uh, the the National Park Service typically, before it opens uh, a site, creates a general management plan, a GMP. It didn't in this case, and it didn't because it knew that it couldn't in anything like a timely fashion. And so it proceeded without a GMP, and instead the interpretation that's there is, is exactly what you're seeing here. These sorts of markers were intended to be temporary just for the opening ceremony, uh, but there's been no agreement between the Park Service and the, the tribal representatives about how to put permanent exhibits in place. And so for the most part, this is all that's there. There's a, a visitor center that's in a double wide, that's in a, a, a temporary, well, this is what the Park Service has the budget for right now. Um, there's a visitor center at the site, but it's very, very small and doesn't actually in, uh, contain any interpretive exhibits. It just sells books, um, including mine, uh, for which we are all very grateful. Um, and... Uh, and, um, and that's really about it. Uh, otherwise, the site is, uh, is an open prairie. Um, there is one location that's been set aside. Again, very, very unusual for National Historic Sites. There's a tribal cemetery that is not controlled by the federal government. It's controlled by the four tribes. It's controlled by the Northern and Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. Um, and, and at that ceremony, they've buried, they've interred uh, the remains of, of people who were killed at Sand Creek, remains that have been repatriated uh, through NAGPRA. And that's really all that's there. They keep trying to come up with more. They keep having meetings, but at the end of all the meetings, they, they, they get nowhere, basically. Go ahead. So in the, in the, the, the print war that you were calling it, um, between the missing things here, Uncle Hunter Johnson and Myers, um, are there images circulating alongside these? Is this just a totally No, sorry. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's the, the, the first image of Sand Creek that I've found, uh, it's not until the early 20th century. Um, and and it's, a, it's a line drawing. Um, now I suspect that there were that there were images that have been lost, but I I don't I don't know what they are. There's very very few uh, images of, of the massacre itself. Um, there's a very famous uh, Hyde painting, hot not not Hyde uh, the historian, but uh, it's an elk hide 
um, that was done by a, a Northern Arapaho elder, and uh, I, I I can't display that image because I don't have the I, I I don't have the right to do it. It's 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 his intellectual property. It's all over the web. You can you can you can Google Sand Creek elk hide and you'll find it. But I don't feel comfortable uh, using it in presentations. Um, his name's Eugene Ridgely Sr. Uh, and um, and there are other contemporary, and that, that was done, I think now, 24, 25 years ago. And there are other contemporary uh, native images, um, but uh, nothing other than uh, the, the, the bent maps. Um, and there's some question about whether Bent himself drew those maps or whether Hyde may have drawn those maps. Um, now, from my perspective, that's a really interesting, in, in my view, struggle over provenance and, and, and cultural authority. I think Ben probably drew the maps. Um, whether he drew them accurately or not, I have no idea. The vent maps are at the University of Colorado in Boulder Library and the University of Oklahoma. No, sorry, uh, the, the, the Oklahoma Historical Society uh, in Oklahoma City. University of Oklahoma does not have, the Western History Collections in Oklahoma used to have one, but gave it to uh, the, the Oklahoma Historical Society. So... I, I teach both Civil War and the Archivist, yep. two rotations. And in approaching Civil War in the West, when you're talking about Santa Cruz, the past, and all these others, how I would struggle with how to tell the story of Santa Cruz without going into dog soldiers. I mean, because it's such a huge story. Sure. It's this massively huge story. And then yeah. also Charlie and yeah. all of it. So, I mean, how do you? navigate, so for instance, it's easy when I'm doing that in my class, yeah. very easy to integrate. It's more challenging because of time constraints to, to be able to flesh out what I think is a very important aspect that's underrepresented. How best do you suggest integrating this story without taking up three, four class periods right. on just Sand Creek, which you very well could do? Sure. Um, that's a really, really good question and a really hard question, which I wasn't anticipating at all. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not answer. No, uh, you know, the, the, the problem for me is that I teach best when I know the least amount about what I'm, the material. Um, I, and that's almost universally true. Uh, the more I know about a subject, the more muddled and, and overly nuanced my teaching becomes, and the more I lose my audience. I'm uh, too, because I call that. Oh, okay. Well, so that's I even. I have this added like internal responsibility right. to, to give some of the Colorado background. Right. Right. So yeah. <laughs> so, so what I I mean the 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 embarrassing or maybe not embarrassing the honest answer is when when I teach the Civil War I don't teach Sand Creek uh, or I haven't. Um, I do the I do the Dakota War and and the and the Cherokees uh, and and I do that because I find Sand Creek it, it, it for precisely the reason you say I, I don't I, once I got once I once I start it would be very very difficult for me to stop were I you I would I would do a Sand Creek lecture that would flash back 
to a variety of different things. And, and I'll tell you why I'm saying this in a moment. It's a totally self-serving answer, of course. Um, but I would, I would use Sand Creek as a way of flashing back and, and recapitulating the road to the Civil War um, and introducing uh, westward expansion and imperialism or reintroducing westward expansion and imperialism from the west looking east rather than from the east looking west. Doing what Colin Cowley has done. For, it's exactly right. And, 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 and simply doing that. And I would talk about the Dakota War, and I would talk about the Cherokees, and I would talk about others. Uh, and, and that's what I, and, and I mean, I say that because that's what I'm doing in this new book that I'm writing, where, where I'm, I'm trying to reinterpret canonical, the sort of mileposts on the road to the Civil War uh, from the perspective of indigenous history. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, how many of you have actually read, I mean, uh, probably most of you have heard of, of Sumner's Crime Against Kansas speech. This is this extraordinary, important speech that, that Sumner gives, and then he gets caned, which is this critical moment, and, and it, it, it's happening right before the, the Sack of Lawrence, or is it right after the Sack of Lawrence? They're almost synchronous within a couple uh, days. Okay, yeah, so I, I, I'm looking at Greg because he actually knows things. <laughs> um, I just make things up. Uh, and um, so, I, but, but I, 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 you know, and I've taught the crime against Kansas four million times, but I'd never read it, uh, which is classic, right? I mean, again, and I, I taught it much better before I'd read it because once I read it, what I realized is that there's lo this long section in the speech about Indians uh, and, and about the necessity of clearing native people out of the West and about how the introduction of slavery into Kansas is gonna stand in the way of that process. Uh, and, and, and so, I mean, that's just one example of the way in which there's an opportunity with an event like Sand Creek or the Dakota War, whatever you choose to do, to, to rethink a number of these critical episodes. Uh, and, and to suggest to people, and, and what, I, what I sometimes say uh, to, not my students because they wouldn't get it, but what I sometimes say to colleagues is that I think that there's a way in which Civil War memory bleeds into teleology. And, and because we have been trained to think about the Civil War as a war of liberation for very good reasons, right? I, I, I really, I hope it's clear in the talk that I'm not trying to say to anyone, oh, the Civil War wasn't actually about slavery. It was about the treatment of that. That's nonsense. And I mean, just errant nonsense and, and silly, but it's also about empire. And, and because by war's end, the focus is relentlessly on the institution of slavery and on what's going to happen to freed people and on, and, on what the, and on what those very complicated questions mean for the future of the nation, there's a way in which the Civil War drops out of, excuse me, the West drops out of the story as a significant region. And, and the best example of this, in my view, is, is Jim McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, which I still think is the best single volume history of the war with all of its problems. And we all know, and, and you know, Jim's, uh, with, the, uh, with the stuff that Jim's written in the New York Times recently, people are very grumpy about him. But that book is still... It, it, it's, it's magisterial, right? It's, it's extraordinary. But if you, if you look at the narrative arc of that book, it's fascinating. It starts in the West. 
And, and one of the really great analytical interventions of that book is that Jim starts in, in, in Mexico City uh, at the end of the U.S.-Mexican War and, and, then, and then opens up the West. By the end of that book, the West is gone. It just, it, it, and, and that is the meta-narrative of the Civil War. And it's wrong. And, and it's teleological, and, 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 it, and it, it operates in the way that it does, I believe, in all of our analytical imagination because of collective memory, because, that, because of the way in which the centrality of the fight over slavery and the future of freed people, the way in which that has such primacy in, in our, which it should. Again, I feel like I need to keep saying that, but there's room for other stories as well. And, and that's why I think that, again, whether it's Sand Creek or it's the Dakota Uprising or you choose, uh, I think that that's a way to reintegrate some of those stories. Now, Sand Creek works well because it's at the end of the war. Because, and, and so it's an opportunity, again, when most people just aren't thinking about the West or about Native peoples anymore, to reintroduce these questions into that narrative, to weave these threads back into that narrative. Which is to reconstruction as well, because reconstruction is, is largely ignored the Western world, you know. And, and, and again, you know, the Elliot West, the piece that you all read, or, or ostensibly read, uh, <laughs> I did one of these again. I've been a participant. Um, the Elliot West piece is great on that front, right? I mean, it's it's it provides a really useful blueprint. The problem with Elliot's piece, in in my and by the way, I, I'm you know Elliot's like unto a god for me, right? I mean, you know, he's he's just the greatest guy ever, and and he's an extraordinary scholar. And saying that there's a problem with that piece, you know, you can hear my voice shaking. <laughs> but the problem with that piece, insofar as there's a problem, is that again, the focus is relentless on race, and 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 it doesn't you it doesn't talk about empire, which, which to me those two things have to, you have to be speaking about race and empire in the same sentence to really make sense of the Civil War and Reconstruction. But, but you know, that's my, like I said, it's a totally self-serving answer, right? It emerges right out of my own work. So there are other probably better answers, um, but that's the one I've got. Um, I comment on the question. Uh, first, I really enjoyed this. And um, in my teaching, which includes a lot of US history survey classes and other classes related to that US history at the time, I, I, I typically Towards the Sand Creek incident with from the Civil War, but no longer. <laughs> so I really do appreciate that. I have a great book for you to assign, <laughs> especially to a large survey class, four or five hundred people, yeah. in cloth. You want the durable? Yeah. So I've used a number of textbooks over the past you know, twenty years or so in teaching U.S. history survey, and and it's always in a separate chapter. You know, you have the Civil War, Reconstruction, and then Western expansion. You know, which starts in the eighteen. When they get into the Plantinians. Yeah. So it's, it's just, if you look at it that way too, it's, it's disconnected from the publisher's standpoint and the writers of those textbooks. But, um, and I mean, I usually do, do include the Western expansion component of the white, you know, talk about the Homestead Act and the federal support for the Transcontinental Railroad, you know, which I think the Lincoln administration was really focused on as well while waging the war. Um, so, but this really brings a new element to it. But um, I'm also interested though in this, uh, this. Fellow Silas Sewell, who uh, is new to me, and 
yeah, I see him as kind of a whistleblower, and, and then he's, he's killed by the soldier. And I'm wondering, whatever happened to the, the fellow who murdered him, was, was there much of a trial, or was it kind of glossed over, and he was let off? Because I think that might be telling him you know, the official understanding of or recognition of what might have happened. Um, so let me, I'm going to respond to both parts. Uh, the first thing that I would say is that um, more broadly, it's, it's my sense that if you look at most U.S. history textbooks, there are exceptions, uh, but if you look at most U.S. history textbooks, um, Native people uh, disappear after the Trail of Tears until, and then reappear at Wounded Knee, um, which is the absolute worst possible way to introduce students to the significance of, of Native peoples in the national narrative. Uh, because it, and, and by the way, I believe this is all unintentional, but, but it, it, it recapitulates or echoes a vanishing Indian narrative, uh, which, which is a pernicious narrative that emerged in the 19th century as one justification uh, for expansion um, and for manifest destiny. It also casts Native peoples unequivocally and, and in every instance as victims. Uh, and it then allows for them simply not to be part of the story in the 20th century. When, when the 20th century history of Native peoples is one of, and I'm, I'm borrowing a term here from National Museum of American Indian and Gerald Visner, it's one of survivance. That's the neologism. Uh, and, and so it's really crucial, again, I think, to make sure that we integrate the stories of Native people in these critical moments, particularly in my view, the history of the Civil War, which for most people is the hinge event in the national narrative. It's, it's you know, Eric Munkinen says that, that America becomes urban in the 1890s, but America becomes modern in, in the era of the Civil War and Reconstruction. The, the, the modern state emerges, et cetera. You all know all of this. I'm not gonna bore you, but, but it's really key to have Indians be part of that story, in, in my view. Uh, so I'll stop uh, banging that drum. So the second question, uh, it was really, it was equally interesting. What did, oh, you want to know about Sewell. Oh, uh, what happened to the guy? There, there were two people who were um, jailed for his murder. Um, the story's really fascinating, and I'm going to blow it. So, uh, so I, I've got it right in my book, but I'm going to get it wrong now. First of all, I forget their names. Uh, <laughs> But one of them escaped and was later apprehended and then escaped again. There was a, now, at the time, the story went that the jailer left the door open on, on his cell so that he could leave. The other one was the, the nephew, maybe not of Stanton, but he was someone's nephew. And, and, and he was politically connected enough that he, he, was, he was freed. Uh, and so not much happens to them is the answer. But again, because I don't remember the details well enough to, to get it exactly right, I'm going to leave it there. I'm, I, I tru as much as I kid around about how everyone needs to buy my book, I hate saying things like buy my book. So if you send me an email, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the, what actually happened to them. I'll just cut and paste the paragraphs where I get it right. 
Um, there's not much written about it, though. It's 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 weird. I mean, there's not much written about Sand Creek. It's it's sort of a it's it's sort of odd that it's that, that there aren't more books out there. There's not a really great straight history of Sand Creek. There's an amazing dissertation written about it. Uh, it was written almost 30 years ago now. Um, and and when I started the project, I, I thought I was just going to write a history of Sand Creek, and then I found this dissertation. Uh, it's by a, guy, by a guy named Gary Leland Roberts. Uh, Gary Roberts, nice guy. Um, and and I and I initially I was like, oh, and it's amazing. By the way, it's like a 900 page. It's exhaustive. It's beautifully written. And I ser- I had this moment where I was just like, I'm going to slap my name on this thing, right? You know, like <laughs> I'm done. Uh, but that seemed you know ethically questionable. And so I ended up doing this other thing instead. But but I keep saying to Gary that he needs to finish this book. You know, it's 30 years old. And, and it's not done, and uh, he's, he's not a young guy, and he's not in great health, and he keeps adding more and more to it. He just is, and, and I'm, you know, I, I've said to him that I'm worried that I'm, I'm going to end up posthumously publishing this thing, you know, and that that's, that's not going to be good for anyone. Uh, but it's out there. So that's another place that you can look for that story. Gary really nails that story. And if you, again, if you, if you send me an email, I've got a PDF of the, dis, of the dissertation if you want it. Or maybe that's not legal. I don't know. <laughs> Fair use, yes. Yeah, go ahead. I mentioned the, the two maps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also very ignorant of the topography, geography, of the area. Sure. Is there a possibility that we have moved or have this over time? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, so, when I finished the book, so, uh, um, okay, first let me, uh, the, it, it's, it's, it's classic high plains. Um, it, it's a rolling landscape the, that, uh, I, if I go further back, it'll, I, I have the effects that I have on the slide, so I'm not going to do it. Imagine that monument overlook. Where it's kind of broken, you know. There's that. Uh, that that's pretty unusual, actually. But instead, it mostly just rolls. Um, but it's pretty flat, right? Uh, but by the time you get to far western Kansas and eastern Colorado, it rolls. It's not. It's not pancake flat. Um, the Atlantic did a thing a few years ago that Kansas is actually flatter than a pancake. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, so um, uh, so, so, and, and, and this site is actually one of the remarkable features of this site is that it's an uninterrupted viewshed. So you, you, you get to see what a prairie would have looked like, not from time immemorial, but certainly in the 19th century. It's intact. It looks really, it looks really, really terrific. They now graze uh, cattle on it to keep the, to keep the fire danger down. Um, it has some cottonwoods that have, which you saw in one of the images that have, that have taken root in the aftermath uh, of Sand Creek. At the time, there, were, there weren't uh, dendrochronologists say that there weren't trees there at the time. Um, so uh, could the creek have moved? So when I finished the book, first of all, you know, true confessions of, of mediocre historians, um, it took me 10 years to write the book, right? I, I, my, my editor by year nine or eight was sending me frantic emails. Uh, you know, she knew that I was working, and, and the story kept changing. That it's not just that I'm lazy. I mean, it's that too, but it's also that the story kept shifting, and and so I had to keep on tweaking things. And every time I tweaked one thing, I had to go back and re and, and change earlier passages. So 
Uh, so she, by year nine, said, you know, you, uh, you're, you're five years past your contracted due date or whatever it is. You know, it's time to hand this thing in. And so I did. And I sent it off to her. And uh, a month later, I got a phone call from, uh, from an interpreter at the site, a guy named Jeff Campbell, who's a fascinating guy, former crime scene investigator for the New Mexico Attorney General's office. And, and he has kind of an obsessive, he's, 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 he's made Sand Creek his, his last great investigation. Um, and Jeff called me and he said, uh, it's not on this map, I, I don't have the right map, but, but up here uh, there's a, 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 an irrigation canal. Um, and Jeff said that he had maps from the, the early 20th century before that irrigation canal uh, was put, before that ditch was dug, um, suggesting that the creek had made, that, that, that the creek had gone like this. And that, uh, and that the bend that Bent was drawing was, was here, um, which in his view allowed all of these stories to be reconciled. This became a way to, and, and so I then had to call my editor and say, stop, you know, like literally stop the presses, you know, I, I, I and she said, you know, no, and I said, seriously, I really need to rewrite an epilogue, and, and she said, Okay, you have 48 hours to get me something, right? She's like, I, I'm not, if you can do it in four, and so I did, you know, I sat down and didn't, I wrote for two days straight, um, which is actually a great way to write in some ways. Sent it to her, and then she said, oh, this is good enough, you can go back and redo it, asshole. Um, and, uh, and, but subsequently, I, I think that's wrong. I actually don't think the creek has, they, they've done additional uh, geomorphology, they've done soil core sampling, which indicates that that this is the that this is the the stream bed for at least the last 300 350 years or something like that, and so um, unfortunately I I hedged in my epilogue I said you know it, it's possible this could provide comment right I mean I because I wasn't persuaded um, but I'm also not persuaded it's wrong. You know, I, I, there's so much about this story, and, and a lot of what my book is about is the limits of, of knowledge. Uh, and this is just one of those areas where I sort of banged up against what, I, what was knowable um, and, and did my best, which wasn't very good. So, oh, you had your hand up. Sorry. Yeah, um, I, I really liked the way you framed this talk in terms of memorialization and the way we kind of represent history through these kinds of monuments and obviously the fraughtness of monumentalization. Um, and I guess I'm just sort of wondering, you know, if the way that the National Park Service has dealt with this historical event is problematic. Is there, I mean, can you talk at all about like, what you think works, what you think doesn't work. I mean, you mentioned the Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial, which is a complicated, bizarre, and I think wildly ineffective example of a, of a monument. So, like, but then how do you deal with a, with a historical event that has multiple interpretations without kind of just suppressing one point of view or, or kind of steamrolling over sure. the ones? Um, well, I mean... I have a whole talk on this. Uh, see, this is like where I know too much. Um, 
the first thing that I would say is that I don't think memorials work best when healing is the goal. Uh, I, I think that that's not a particularly effective use of a memorial canvas. Um, my own view is that uh, memorials are about exactly what they should, what they should be about, which is remembering things, and that the, and that the process of memory is very rarely comfortable. Uh, I mean, we have good memories, we have bad memories, um, but generally, when we remember tragedies, that's or, or or moments of sorrow, that's not something that's 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 comfortable. And I I don't heal through remembering the the death of loved ones. Uh, I mean, I I don't want to get deep in. The problem is, is that I spent a full year um, immersing myself in both the literature around collective trauma and historical trauma and cognitive neuroscience. And, and one draft of my book was all about that stuff. And, and by the time I got to the end of it and read it, I was like, this is awful. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and so I'm still, I, I'm, I'm loath to get deep into these fields that are fully articulated and realized by scholars that actually know what they're talking about. So I'm, I'm giving you just a gloss and saying to you that in my view, we shouldn't be looking to memorials for healing. We should be looking to them to uh, either provoke um, or maintain conversations. That what we want is people to have sites where they can gather, where they can come together, and recognize that, in fact, healing may not be possible when it comes to certain issues, or even appropriate. Uh, so the descendants, and, and I, I have, I'm always very careful because I, I don't speak for them. They have their own voices. And in the book, I'm very careful simply to quote them, right? I, don't, I, don't, I never in the book say what they mean is, I don't know what they mean. Um, I know what they say. So what I can tell you is that what the descendants have said is that they don't want to be told not to be angry. Mm-hmm. That, that's not, they have zero interest in, in feeling calm or happy, that, that, that they view their anger and their sorrow as both powerful and uh, efficacious, that there's utility. And, 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 and I say that because most of the descendants, not all of them, the descendants, again, aren't, there's no uniformity. They're not monolithic. They're like any other group of people. But most of the descendants are, are, are so-called traditional people. And, and they view memories of Sand Creek and the anger that they carry with them and that's been passed across generations as a kind of fuel that allows them to keep struggling to maintain tribal traditions. And in the face of onslaughts from a variety of different directions, both within their communities and external. And so they don't want to heal. That's not. Now, having said that, they have their own mechanisms that they use for healing. There's an annual run where they bring together tribal youth and they start at the massacre site and they run to the, the capital. It's a relay. Uh, it's, it's almost a 200-mile run. Um, they run to the capital of that statue that I showed you in Denver. So, so having said all of that, I, I, I think that this has been an, an incredibly effective memorial in the sense that it's, it's generated a lot of conversation. The second way in which it's quite effective is that tribal cemetery that I mentioned has been remarkable. Uh, and and I, I, I actually I can't, I can't talk much about that because those stories aren't mine to tell at all. They, they really belong to the descendants and to the NAGPRA representatives. 
but there's a little bit about it in the book, but mostly you just have to you have to find you have to find that stuff for yourself. I'm not a, a, no one's talked to me and said to me you can speak about these stories in public. And so, but but it's been extraordinary um, because it is a tribal space within a national historic site. It is it is it is a literal reclaiming of territory within a federalized uh, parcel of land. And it's, and it's kind of amazing in that regard. Um, and visitors who come to the site confront it in that way. Visitors are not allowed into the cemetery. So this is a public space that has within it a tribal space that's off limits to visitors, which is a very, very powerful uh, representation of, of tribal sovereignty, in my view. Um, so you know that's, that's about what I would say. Do we have time for one? I don't want to. I don't want to mess with the schedule. I'm looking at. Um, a very quick question. Okay. Very quick. <laughs> I'll, I'll. For one person. <laughs> <laughs> you have to decide. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Anyone else besides Sarah? Oh yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, quick question. Um, you mentioned that it centered dishonor. Yeah. That um, she acknowledged two original sins. One of them was. Yeah, slavery. 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 Okay. Yeah, she uh, like uh, many of the so-called Indian reformers. Again, that was the the uh, Jackson had been an abolitionist, um, and a, and a number of abolitionists in the aftermath of the Civil War turned their attention to the way in which uh, Native peoples were being treated and, and saw this as a as an additional sin. Um, excuse me, stain on on the soul of the nation uh, that that needed to be cleansed somehow. Sure, no problem. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you all very, very much.